Morning. Morning. Good to see you guys. Um, I'm going to bring this up a little bit. There. You can still see my face, right? Okay. Um, so, Catherine already prayed, so I'm just going to jump right into, into the words this morning. So, um, I'm excited, right? Like, Two weeks in Easter, right? Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite uh, holidays. Um, I mean, it's more than a holiday. Uh, it's kind of everything, uh, but I'm really excited. And next Sunday is, is Palm Sunday, um, which brings us into remembering that last week, the Passion Week of, of Jesus' life before um, he was crucified, um, which is centrally important. Centrally, uh, did you know that uh, one third of the gospel books, those are the books written about Jesus' life and ministry, that one third of the gospel books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and one half of the book of John are devoted just to the last week of Jesus' recorded ministry? So that kind of shows you how important that is, right? Um, There's something certainly special that must be going on there. And I've been thinking about that lately. Um, I was, I've been thinking about the history of, of kind of the world um, and the history of eternity. Um, as believers, when we look at the Bible and look at, at, at time, we see that there was no beginning. We believe that there was no beginning. God has always been. They're just, he, he was never created. He's just, it's been from, there was no beginning. And we also believe that there is no end God just continues on forever, as well as our souls, whether we're with God in eternity or whether we're separated from God in eternity, which is sad. But, but there is no beginning and no end. So in our minds, there's really no middle, you know? There can't be a middle if there's no beginning and no end, at least the way that we see time. There's no middle. But I would say that there's a climax, and I would say that the climax of all history can be nailed down to 33 years. Jesus' lifetime, he lived about 33 years. Or maybe more specifically, the three years of his public ministry. Or maybe even more specifically, the three days of his death and resurrection. Now to say that those three days changed everything doesn't even do those events justice. I, I, it's, it's bigger than everything, you know, that we don't have words for it. Because in a day, the Son of God, who stepped out of eternity, was murdered on that Good Friday, and all hope was lost. All of his followers were devastated and questioning if they had given up their old stability livelihood, and the last few years of their lives for nothing. They were confused and hurt, wandering around like a sheep without a shepherd. The devil and the demons were reveling in their victory. It's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. Because we know what happens later. Three days later, God reached down and raised him up from the dead and actually defeated death. 
He defeated Satan and demonic forces. He defeated all sin, evil, and injustice. And he defeated hell. The climax of history and eternity. So it was to the past. The prophets and the people of the Old Testament looked forward to this, whatever was going to happen, happening. And it was to the future, people of the New Testament. And we today as believers look back to it. It was the climax of history. Even most of the world recognized that something special happened. So they sectioned time off into the time before Christ, B.C., and A.D., which is Anno Domini, which is the Latin word, uh, Latin phrase, year of our Lord. Jesus was and is the center of history. But for Jesus to get to this point, he had to get to this point. Now, Jesus had all of eternity to prepare for the passion, right? I mean, Jesus, the son, is fully God. And you read in scripture and he was, I mean, the book of John starts off with, in the beginning was the word, and it's talking about Jesus. He was always here. He always, so he had all of eternity to prepare for this, but he also only had 30 years on earth as fully man. Because even though Jesus is fully God, Jesus the Son was also fully human and subject to human time, right? And we don't know a lot about Jesus' life uh, as a, a kid. We know a few things. But nobody is really clear, and there's debate about this among scholars, of when did Jesus on earth really understand who he was and what he had to do? Have you ever thought about that? Some people say, well, he was in the temple when he was little. Talking. He was talking theology. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. This is my opinion, okay? So, and, and a guess. But my guess is that he understood who he was to a point when he was a teenager. I mean, he was probably hanging out with a bunch of boys, and, you know, boys do what they do, you know, getting in trouble and sinning, and he wasn't sinning. There was something different about that. He knew and studied Scripture as a good Jewish boy, so he could understand that he was actually beginning to fill the Old Testament prophecy about a man and a son of God. And I'm sure he heard the stories of his mom and dad about the virgin birth, which would be kind of awkward, don't you think? <laughs> um, now, again, this is just my opinion, so I hope that you're not offended by, by this, but my guess is that he really fully got it and, and got what he had to do to save the world, the death that awaited him during his 40-day fast in the wilderness before he entered public ministry. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's just the way I, 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 I as I study, that's the way I, I would lean towards. Now, this morning, I would like to take uh, one, uh, a look at one overlooked statement made about Jesus during that time before the Passion in the book of Luke. We're going to be looking at uh, Luke 9. Now, if anyone of you has this memorized, I will give you $50. Luke 9.51. So before we read it, let me give you a little bit of context. Scholars and, and academics who study the Bible view Luke in the way that it can be kind of structured into five units. 
The first unit is his infancy and childhood, which is short, about three chapters. Then you get John the Baptist's call to prepare the people for the promised Savior and Jesus' qualifications to be this promised one. The third is when his public ministry starts, the Galilean ministry, where he was raised, um, where he calls his first disciples of Matthew, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and where he performs the majority of his miracles. Most of his miracles happen in Galilee. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them. And then there's this fourth unit that starts at this verse, 951, and it's referred to as the Jerusalem journey or the journey to Jerusalem. And then there's the last unit, which is coming next week. So let's look at Luke 9.51. And again, I'm going to give a little bit more context. Um, Those of you who've read Scripture, do you ever come across a verse that's maybe not well-known, like John 3.16, but it jumps out at you like God wants to say something specifically to you, but you're not quite sure what it is? This has been one of those that I saw in my Bible years ago. I even highlighted it in one of my old Bibles. But I never really timed to, took the time to study it or really had the opportunity to share it with anyone because you know, I shared it with a friend of mine last week of what I was going to study on. He said, well, what are you speaking on? I said, Jesus. And he's like, yes. He said, well, oh, more specifically. And I said this verse, and he's like, and... Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the very beginning of the journey to Jerusalem. It's a short verse, but I think it packs a punch as we look at at what's going on. So the Jerusalem journey... um, is happening. So you probably know as you read that the, the disciples in Jesus were somewhat nomadic in their travels before. They had probably been to Jerusalem before, but this is like the last. This, was, this journey, this Jerusalem journey, was their final road trip. And in fact, in Luke, you don't even get the sense that they had ever been to Jerusalem before, but it, probably they had. But this was the last road trip. From Galilee in the north, to Judea and Jerusalem in the south. And I think we've talked about this before, but if you look at Israel in that time, you had Galilee in the north, you had Samaria in the middle, and Jerusalem to the south. And Jews would typically kind of go a roundabout way to not to go into Jerusalem because they hated each other. The, uh, the, the Samaritans were people who they saw as half-breeds, they were half-Jewish have something else. They believed in Yahweh, the one true God, but they also worshiped other gods. There's a whole history to it. But they just didn't interact well. There was violence. There was hatred both ways. Um, but interestingly enough, if you read this Gospels, you know that the last time that they went through Samaria, they had some success. If you know the story of the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan outside of a Samaritan village. So, Okay, it's time to set out. It's time to get this Jerusalem uh, journey going. So on their way, Jesus did perform, perform some miracles on the way. Um, 
But the gospel accounts actually show not quite as many as before, which we'll kind of delve into that a little bit more. And the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins was still being preached by his disciples. And it wasn't just the 12 disciples. It was like more than that. He had a larger group following. So ministry certainly was still going on. Jesus' ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, all of that was going on. But as we read Luke, things feel a little different this time. I had never noticed this before until I really got into this. And, and, and really, there's something different about what's going on on this uh, journey. There seems to be more of an urgency in what Jesus was teaching. I mean, he's talking about commitment to God and, and, and uh, separating the sheep from the goats, the good people from those who don't follow God, and just an urgency and, and strong words. In fact, it talks about how um, uh, the Jeru Jerusalem journey was more, less about miracles and more about discipleship and teaching. But with hindsight, we can also see why there was an urgency and where this journey was going. See, this time, this way, Jesus knew what was awaiting him. He knew the scriptures and he knew the prophet Isaiah was prophesying about him in Isaiah 53 when it says the Messiah, the Son of God, would be pierced with nails for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. He had already shared with his disciples twice, actually in the same chapter of, of Luke, right before they left, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He knew he was headed for the cross. He knew this was the climax of his life. Jesus knew he came to earth in order to die. Jesus was born to die. And while the mission of delivering the good news of salvation was a success up to this point, it, you know, people were coming and following him and, and excited. I mean, something happened on this journey. There was opposition. I mean, they had faced some opposition before, but just read the scriptures, see what happens. The people had hard hearts, didn't care or didn't seek to understand. There were like three types of people that I saw as I was reading this um, that weren't nice. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the context, Remember, he had success the first time in Samaria. Samaria. We just talked about that. But the very next verse after 951, 952, tells a different reaction this time. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. 
The first type of people who opposed him were those who didn't know him. These Samaritans likely rejected Jesus and the disciples probably for a couple of reasons. One, they were Jews. And secondly, they were telling us a message that nobody wanted to hear. And then there's the second group of those who opposed him. The second group who opposed him were those who knew him and actually followed his, his teaching until it got hard. I'm not going to go into the, the whole gist of it, but in John 6, he talks, he's talking about a lot of things, but one of the things he talks about is that you know, to actually be part of me and, and my kingdom, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. But he was not, that was a metaphor. He was actually talking about taking communion and being part of his life. But it didn't enter some of their hearts. John 6, 66 said, after many of his disciples, after this, after this saying, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now the 12 stuck with him at this point. But most, can you imagine that? Most of them were like, oh, this is too hard. I'm done. And then there was the third. And I think this is the hardest. It was the friends. It was the 12 that he was closest with. At the times Jesus told his disciples about his impending suffering and death, they didn't really get it. The interesting thing is, is the first couple of times they don't say anything about it. They didn't even question him. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't understand Jesus. It was like they wanted to avoid it. It wasn't until probably the third time that he predicted his death when Peter spoke up. Peter, always impetuous. Peter heard this, Jesus saying, you know, I'm going to suffer and die. And he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. You can find this uh, in Matthew. Began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whoa. I mean, can you imagine what Peter felt like at that point? Get behind me, Satan. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, who actually just a couple verses before he had, he had declared, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And now Jesus is basically saying, you're like, you're, you're a hindrance to me. You're a, a child of Satan. Now, he wasn't calling him Satan, but, you know, you get the point. I mean, I'm not going to go into it, but, I mean, he's, get behind me, Satan. Wow, Peter must have been, just felt so rejected. You know? But imagine how Jesus felt. Besides being frustrated, his life-giving life work was being rejected and hindered by maybe his closest friend. Can you imagine the emotions Jesus must have felt on his last journey? He was rejected by those who didn't know him. He was rejected by followers of his who couldn't handle some of his teachings. And he even lost some of his closest friends. 
further on, as you get further closer to next week, they couldn't even stay awake for an hour to pray with him in Jesus' uh, night of agony, the night that he was going to be arrested by the Romans to be taken to be crucified. He said, couldn't you even just stay with me and, and pray with me for an hour? But they fell asleep. And they abandoned him at the cross. And all of these people, he was actually giving his life for. But they all abandoned him. No wonder Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and rejected by men, and he was a man of sorrows. But just as he was clear and direct to Peter, he was also clear and direct about his journey. Other verses of our theme verse, 951, go something like this. As the time approached, the NIV says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The King James says, Jesus steadfastly set his face. The message says, he gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem. So whatever version you use, you get the idea that this is not just a passing, passing fancy or meaningless side thought of Jesus. There's a strength in these words. Set his face, resolutely, resolved, steadfastly, steeled. This is not just a side thought. This verse, this statement speaks directly to the nature and mission of Jesus. Amidst the opposition, the rejection, the confusion, amidst the sorrow he felt, the sadness, the agony. Later on, chapter 13, it says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and always journeying toward Jerusalem. Always toward Jerusalem. Think about the burden he was carrying. The burden of the sins of the world, the addictions, the violence and sorrows. Think about the guilt that you may, maybe some of you are carrying guilt with you about something. He actually took that guilt and felt that guilt that you feel. And you think that that's weighing you down. He took the guilt of everybody in the world. Can you imagine understanding and feeling the guilt of the world? He took away our guilt. So he, he took the burdens of, of the uh, sin, addiction, violence, sorrows, guilt. He also took the burden of knowing he was walking towards a tortuous death. And the burden of having to do this really kind of on his own. I kind of like to just think about that for a second. When we look at Jesus' life, it's all good, right? The whole thing. It's, it's all real. It's unique. It's revelatory. But for me, for this season, it seems as if his identity of mission is more disclosed on this journey. Not that I've got any of the, you know, all of this figured out, but my whole Christian life, or most of my Christian life, I've seen and, and been mentored to constantly and consistently to think of Jesus sort of as a type B uh, personality. 
that he's always a man that values relationships more than anything else. But I'm also learning that Jesus was also a man of mission. He was born to die. And sure, he was dying for people, so you can't, relationships and mission aren't mutually exclusive. But Jesus didn't save the world the way the people wanted or expected. So he also wasn't really worried about what they or we thought about that. Jesus steeled himself and resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus went through many towns, but kept his sights on Jerusalem. He wasn't distracted by the city lights or activity or events on his journey. His mission was to go and save the world. He never wavered, and he always had the end in sight. As we are closing in on Lent and looking forward to the Passion Week, my focus this morning is a lot about viewing Jesus in a way that we may not think of him. A man stricken and abandoned, a man of sorrows, and a man who moved towards his death, and a man of mission. And I kind of just want to think about that as we're moving on uh, into into the last weeks before Easter. And I was thinking I'd just stop there, but I do think I can see also sort of a relevance to our lives today, like this day. If Jesus' life and works are the model, we're all on a faith journey. I mean, you don't just get saved and then stop. You know, if we are Jesus' modern-day disciples or followers, what do followers do? They follow, you know? They move forward. They continue on a journey. And we're not perfect yet, so we're on a journey. So as I mentioned before, you know, while Jesus' identity was disclosed or revealed on on this journey, our identity is actually formed on our journey. For his followers, those following Jesus, following or journeying with Jesus is our ultimate identity. Following him, following his ways, following his teachings, following his life, following his spirit. Following or journeying with Jesus is also our ultimate mission. Now, I'm a husband, I'm a dad. I'm a pastor and a lover of good coffee. I'm getting into hiking. I'm really enjoying that. Shout out to the Lukox who do it like I think every day. Um, but does any of my part of my life oppose my ultimate mission? Do any of those things oppose my ultimate mission? Are any of these distractions? If so, I may need to refocus or reprioritize. Maybe even I need to give some things up. Now, not my marriage, not being the dad of my kids, but I need to make sure that I'm moving and my journey is right. 
ask yourself this question. Jesus taught and healed, shared meals and other things in towns along the way to Jerusalem. Do you think these were distractions? I would say no. Because they didn't stop his journey. And they were actually part of the journey. And I think that's another thing that we should ask ourselves more directly. What's part of the journey? And what's a distraction? I have a good friend named Rachel. And uh, my friend Rachel has a PhD and is a college professor. And I think that level of academia, scholarship, and professional development could be a huge distraction, as many of you are working hard and being developed professionally. A lot of you guys are students. And I've seen it happen, especially with students and those in academia, that it can become a distraction. But it also could be part of the journey of following Jesus. For Rachel, she just needs to check the motives of her heart and make sure that she's still walking and journeying. And that other stuff is important, but it's helping her. This is a kind of a side note, but I think that every one of our relationships in our life should draw us closer to the heart of Jesus. Now, you may say, well, I know some people that don't know Jesus. That doesn't mean that they're not challenging you. Maybe their challenge of you is actually drawing you closer to the heart of Jesus. If somebody is drawing you further away from Jesus, you really got to check out what is going on in that relationship. But that's the same thing with with our lives. Are we distracted by by drinking too much coffee? Um, Or is that actually helping us in the journey? I would say, for me, actually... Honestly, going out and having coffee with people that want to talk about Jesus, that's helping my journey. Or another friend of mine named Pastor Scott. (laughs) His middle name is Scott. His first name is Pastor. (laughs) Believe it or not, ministry for him could be a distraction. Because, again, you can be giving of yourself so much that your actions actually become your soul or main basis in your relationship with Jesus. That's not right. And suddenly, when you take a step back, you become to realize that you've been doing ministry for ministry's sake, not for Jesus' sake. And you realize you haven't been moving on the journey. But thank God. Thank God that we have a roadmap for our journey. I don't have an actual Bible, but that's what I would show you. That's our roadmap, Holy Scripture. And in our journey, we have fellow sojourners, some who are new to the path, and some who... Um, have journeyed along for it for years and have greater experience and wisdom and kind of know what are some of the common pitfalls and things to watch out for. That's God's people. That's those of you who are followers, the church. And then we have what's the best, 
the lead guide, the Holy Spirit who is the expert, who will always lead us in all truth, who will always guide us in the journey and in the toughest terrain, who knows where he's going, even in the dark when we can't see it and we don't get it, and who will lead us home. One last thing about this guy that's different from others. He's willing to die for you. And he already did. And you know why he did it? Because he deeply loves you. So to end, we're going to do what we've been doing the last few weeks. Um, We're going to get into groups of... uh, four or five, um, don't move your chairs yet, um, and just kind of discuss a, a few things. I don't know, I haven't been looking at the time, but we'll close it when it's time. Um, I was trying to think of, of some questions that would really get us thinking about it, like moving forward. And um, One of the questions you can ask is, so what's, so what's kind of a tradition that your family has or that you have uh, during Easter? It's kind of like a lighthearted question. Um, you can ask, answer that. But also, have you been preparing your heart to celebrate Good Friday and Easter? And why, or how, or what should you do? And then my last question is about those distractions. What are some distractions in your life that you need to really question? How do I prioritize or reprioritize or get rid of it or... You know, what do I do with those? Now, you got to be honest about these, right? I have plenty of distractions. I would say, um, at times, watching sports on TV is a distraction because I just get into it and, you know, I mean, it takes away from my time that I could be spending in time with my family or with God. I mean, something like that, or it could be something even deeper. But you got to be honest with these, so try to. If you're brand new and you don't like to talk, and just kind of maybe listen in on, on the discussions. But uh, let's break up into groups of uh, four or five or s- somehow like that, and uh, then we'll close you guys up after a uh, few minutes of discussion. Amen?